Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about St. John Paul II's Letter to Artists. If you have not read this letter, it is amazing, and I will link to it in the description of the show. But basically, this week, Dennis and Chris dive into the text of that letter and then also provide some background information about St. John Paul II and maybe what his mindset was when he wrote this in the first place. Also, I want to do two things. I want to thank all of you who came out to our Young Adult Liturgy Conference last weekend. It was a blast. We had so much fun. I loved meeting all of you who listened to the show, and I loved hearing all the great feedback from the conference. We hope to do more conferences like this in the future, so stay tuned on that. And secondly, I want to encourage you to review our podcast on the iTunes page. If you do that, it will significantly increase the ability for us to reach more people through this podcast. Basically, we want to reach as many people as possible. So please go to our iTunes podcast page, review this podcast, give us as many stars as you want. And without further ado, episode 43 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Have you guys ever written a letter? When's the last time you wrote a letter to somebody? I wrote a letter to someone yesterday. Dang it. With a pen. Oh, you did. In a card, and I put it in the mail. Yes. It I, gave a, wow. I gave a talk in Houston, and it's a very nice couple sponsored it, and I sent them a thank you note with real handwritten Yeah, note. but the problem is when you write a letter, it doesn't mean something, but like when John Paul II writes a letter, and like everybody reads it. Well, Dear you'd Dennis. be surprised. My letter to this family is going to go viral. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sponsoring my lecture. Everybody wants to know. But John Paul's letter to artists was intended from the beginning to go to every artist in the world and anybody else who wanted to know. But he when didn't he, like write it down and stamp it everybody was an artist. Man, no. They say Pope Benedict wrote everything by hand. I don't know. Don't what, did what he? Pope John Paul II did. Who are these they that you keep talking about? Oh, I know the, the they. You know they? Okay. But see, John Paul II... Because he was persecuted basically his whole life, first by the Nazis and then by the communists, they're always trying to eradicate Poland. Right? Poland was the enemy of the Germans, was the enemy of the, enemy of the Russians, and depending on what year it is, if you look in the, the atlas or maps of Europe, there might not be a Poland on the map. It'll say Prussia or Russia or Germany, whatever. And so he knew that the way to preserve the Polish national identity as a thing and not be eradicated was culture. Beautiful poetry. That's why he was a playwright or in a play... Oh, yeah. He was an actor. What, what is this? The jeweler's shop. I was in that in, in college, actually. It was very fascinating. The play or the store? <laughs> I didn't even go to a jeweler's shop for my wife's engagement ring, Chris. Mm-hmm. Somehow that, I believe that. But that online. Uh, Cracker Jack. <laughs> yeah, it online. also whistles if you blow into it. But, uh, but if Catholic culture is degenerating, what's the same thing? It wasn't communists, you know, officially communists per- persecuting the church, but we're kind of falling apart in our own tradition. So what do you do? You go to the people who are the people who carry on the beautiful realities of Christian culture and say, mm-hmm. this is what you need to know. In fact, there's a famous story from, really tragic story from the history of Poland where the Nazis um, 
invited all the leaders from Poland, the, the artists, the scientists, the university professors, out to some retreat, and they said they wanted to talk to them, and then they murdered them all. It's a very famous and tragic story because they wanted to cut off the head of the intelligence and the culture of Poland to oh, sort wow. of demoralize it. So, you know, John Paul's no slouch when it comes to the importance of cultural things. And so he writes this letter to artists saying he wants to reconcile artists and the church, mostly by teaching artists what their, their high calling is, which kind of implies that there is a rupture between artists and the church. And you can see, you know, when you go out and look for Christian art, you kind of have two options these days for the most part. One is sort of junk from catalogs, and one is the high art people do things that aren't very good or very Christian. And there seemed to be this gap between the, the true artist and the church. And he wanted to bring that back together so they could continue the mission of carrying on the, the faith of the church. So he starts telling people what an artist is. And this goes a little bit from our beauty podcast, but we're carrying it into something that was you know, actually put down in words from a pope about the importance of it. Not just the fact that these, you know, ideas exist about art and beauty, but the fact that it's, you know, he really puts it into directional words, you know, like how, words of action. Absolutely. And at first you might not know what he's talking about, because sometimes when philosophers speak, you don't know what they're saying. But if you really look at this and say, okay, what's he saying? You can, it can get very practical very uh, quickly. It becomes very liturgical, also liturgically important, um, explicitly so, uh, throughout his pontificate and still today. Um, maybe we can get to this uh, towards the end. We want to build our natural foundation about what art is and whatnot. But uh, the way the church speaks about um, the celebration of the liturgy today is an ars celebrandi. There's an art of celebration. Or um, maybe one of the most recent documents, liturgical documents, was the director, the homiletic directory. And it's called at the beginning Ars Predicandi. Predicandi. What uh, is it? What's Predicandi? Preaching. Uh, yeah, art okay. of preaching. But the, the umbrella un, under which the church speaks about things liturgical isn't simply uh, rubrical or canonical or historical. It's about you're trying to produce a beautiful work of art, which ultimately is the radiant face of Christ. The Holy Spirit is called the artisan of God's masterpieces. The sacraments of the new law. So this really is the I don't, the new rubric of things liturgical is to speak of, and all of this came um, out of John Paul II's pontificate. As far as I can tell, this uh, this title uh, Ars Celebrandi was originated by him, but just in in the year that he died, in this letter that he had sent to then Cardinal Lorenzo. So not only is it this uh, letter speak about art, but then it, it overflows into liturgical things. And in fact, one of our students at the Liturgical Institute, Claire Gilligan, hi Claire, wherever you are, she works mm -hmm. for Magnificat now, it. she wrote her very master's thesis. beautiful publication. Yes, and they knew that the value of art was very important in that little Magnificat, they always have art, beautiful art on the cover. But um, she argued that Ars Celebrandi of the priest is actually a prerequisite for the active participation of the people, because if the priest acts like a buffoon, he's going to distract them from prayer. If he acts like Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He's going to lead them into praying at the right hand of the Father because they're witnessing that in front of them. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, uh, Cardinal Ra uh, Pope Benedict in um, Sacramentum Caritatis, he'll talk about that, that the Ars Celebrani Participatio Actuosa go together. They go hand in hand. But what you said right there, Dennis, I think is getting to the core of what uh, the, the Holy Father believes about art and what the Church teaches about art. Good art is like uh, we said, or rather isn't, like we said in the music podcast, you know, this internalization of me, but is an expression of something objective and true and ultimately beautiful, and that is Jesus. Right, and he compares it right at the beginning that the world tells, he says, artists, you know, the world tells you there's this thing called art for art's sake, meaning 
you just do stuff because it's fun. And art has its own value. Or that art is the expression of the emotion of the artist. But he turns it on its head right away and he says, art is for the revelation of God's beauty. Now, beauty will involve the ordering and the raising up of us to our own perfection. So uh, art is, is a servant of the church. It says that right in Vatican II as well, that the fine arts... Oh, I like that. Art is the servant of the church. That's really beautiful. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, if, you're, if you make chasubles and you sew, your art is at the service of the church. If you're a metal worker and you make chalices, your art is at the servant of, uh, at service I, I of make the a lot of memes. That's like my That's service. That's his own <laughs> special member of the That's mystical body. Type of beauty, Jesse. I don't, I don't think JP2 is talking about that, but... Right, but he's not making this up. I mean, Vatican II says in chapter 7 of Sacrosan and Concilium, that the fine arts rank as among the highest of man's ge- uh, genius and that um, they're given to the church. They're very important. Can you imagine if we didn't have art of any kind, how could we make an image of the heavenly Jerusalem? How could we make a statue? How could we have the song of the angels at the throne of God? How could we have a priest vested in the clothing of heaven? How could we have a chalice that anticipates the heavenly Jerusalem? Without artists, everything would just be flat. The language would be boring. Everything would just be dull and uninteresting. I would, I would argue that it would be really hard to know God without art. Exactly, because that's what an artist does. He goes beyond, or she goes beyond our fallenness and reaches into our perfection and allows us to see it and then become habituated to it and then becomes normal. So, so what else is, um, by the way, do you know the impetus for this letter? Is there, uh, uh, what, why did he write this in the first place? You talked about because of this Poland thing, but was there anything in that time that he felt really compelled to, to write this? Well, he says it's to reconcile artists in the church. I think he just looked around and saw that the Catholic culture was declining, that artists didn't really know what they were supposed to be doing when it came, when it came to their own vocation. So he's looking at the interest of you know, pastoring souls, but also in service to the church. If they're going to do it, they should know how to do it and what they're doing. And probably there's a lot of junky, ugly, discordant, broken art that wasn't really embodying the idea of Christianity. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the <laughs> how to do it correctly and how to do the good... Now, this doesn't answer your question about why John Paul wrote it, but we, uh, I've heard Father Bishop Barron say this often, that uh, art and beauty is one of the most powerful tools of evangelization today. So if you talk about evangelization through truth, goodness, or beauty, it's difficult to convey the contents of the faith through the truth argument, right? Because everyone has his or her own truth. Mm-hmm. Or the goodness argument that you should act in this way. This is the right way to act. Well, that's difficult too. But there's something that is undeniably attractive about things that are beauty, that, that, that are beautiful. And so art, at least in Bishop Barron's uh, um, thinking, is necessary today because of its evangelical power. Now, whether that was uh, part of what was motivating uh, John Paul II, I don't know. But certainly, I, I, I think, you know, as Dennis said, I mean, the place of art and beauty, as expressed in the Catechism and his other letters, is a key component of expressing the faith liturgically or otherwise and so he need it was was something he had to try to clarify uh, its place in the church right and the traditional teaching about beauty is that it it moves the will toward the good so when you see something beautiful you you're perceiving something good and you want to go closer you want to know more learn more if you smell delicious food you want to go eat the food you don't say it smells enough and i'll eat it even if it doesn't smell delicious (laughs) well you tell the sims about chocolate chip cookies right i think i've done that here on the podcast before but if you smell chocolate chip cookies in the front door when you come in from school you want to go in the kitchen and get the full conscious active participation in cookies you want the fullness of cookie 
if someone just gave you a book outside and said, these are the ingredients of chocolate chip cookies and you cook it, you know, for 20 minutes at 375. Mm, yummy. Who cares, right? But mm-hmm. smell those cookies. You say, oh, I want more. There's something more about the reality of that beauty that um, attracts you. And so beauty is often called the attractive power of the truth or the splendor of the truth. So you can argue the truth. You know, you see these kind of sidewalk evangelizing people and they have these signs, you know, do this or you go to hell. Well, that just doesn't work, you know, in our day. There's nothing beautiful about that. But you meet a person who has a beautiful life. You meet Mother Teresa and you say, wow, her her life is poured out completely for others and she's joyful. I want to live like that. I see that beauty. I want to do that. And so there's this, what they call, mimetic desire, desire to imitate that which you see. Well, it's true. I mean, why is Mother Teresa, I probably asked this before on the podcast, why is she so beautiful? She's not on the cover of Vogue magazine, right? But why is she more beautiful than the woman who is on the cover of Vogue? Because she reveals the ontology of a person transformed by divine life. And revealing of ontology is beauty. A beautiful thing reveals what it is at the highest. And it it reveals our desire to want to be like that, to go live the way we should and take care of others and be selfless and not be bound up by mm-hmm. earthly cares. Mm-hmm. So what, what are some of these um, specific things that JP2 says uh, to, to artists in his letter? Well, first thing he says is that artists, he calls them ingenious creators of beauty. Ingenious meaning... Oh, they, that's so nice of I him. I know, well, but you know what? If you're really an artist, that's what you are. And he says it's not an accident. It's not just a historical thing that you, know, you were sent to art school but there is a, a religious experience that we have in our gut, and we want artists have a vocation to do this. So think of someone as a vocation to marriage or the priesthood or religious life. They don't really know what that is yet, but they just want to go find out. They go to, you know, Corvatus Days, or they go on a nun run or whatever. I need to know more. And then they say, that's what I'm supposed to be. If you just said, well, guess what? Religious life is whatever the heck you want it to be. Go live alone. Well, that's not being conformed to the pre-existing reality. So he's telling artists, yeah, you have a desire deep down in you, and you have to know what it is you're being called to. So then he kind of walks through some of these things. And one of the first distinction he makes, distinctions that he makes is the difference between the creator and the craftsman. This is very important because we use the word create a lot. Architects always say, I create space or I create oh, yeah, this or that. Definitely. Create, properly speaking, means to make something from nothing. This is what God did at the beginning of the world. He created ex nihilo. So he made something from nothing. And in the strict sense, this belongs to God alone. No artist can sit in a room and wave their hands and suddenly clay, you know, is created out Mm -hmm. of nothing. But they can dig up clay in the earth and then fashion it into something and give it form and meaning. And so he's he's helping artists understand this is what you do. You don't start from nothing. You start with something. But... But, but this is a very important thing because what does an artist do? He's created in the image of God, which means he shares the capacities of God. So what, how did God make Adam in the biblical description? He formed him from clay. Exactly. But he also created the clay. Well, right. But So God's the creator and the craftsman in that sense. And then how do you make Eve? Well, he took a rib out of Adam. So he's taking stuff and making stuff. Of course, he made the stuff <laughs> from the beginning. But an artist in the earthly sense starts with the stuff. But... But because he shares in the capacities of God, that's intellect and will, uh, he can give shape to earthly matter just as God gave shape to earthly matter. And the choice the artist has is to do it well or do it badly, to reveal, make statues of the devil or make statues of the Virgin Mary. You have a choice, but in either case, you have to know what you ought to do, how to serve the greater good, and how to glorify God. But it's a very, very high power that, you know, think about, say, you know, a married couple can make a baby. I mean, that's an amazing thing. 
-hmm. still can't do that in the lab. An artist can take that uh, attribute of his intellect and will and make a thing that reveals the heavenly Jerusalem. That's so you're awesome. saying you craft a baby. Well, you do, right? <laughs> you can't make a baby from nothing. All you can do is use what you already have and... and well, that's another podcast. We'll yeah. talk about that later. <laughs> but that's the theology of the body, right? That you, the body reveals God. The artist has this uh, share in God's own creative power, just like parents do. And so the call of the artist is very exalted. It's not uh, just the guy who um, you know, builds the roads. It's the person who re reaches into the heavenly future, sees what heavenly beauty could be like, and then can do something that other people can't do. Well, it sounds like you're describing here, and maybe you're going to get to this, but at one point, doesn't he... Um liken works of art to almost like sacraments because this is one of the th this Spoiler is what it sounds alert. like here uh, <laughs> so imagine you have this matter this material this uh, stuff as you put it you know the clay whatever it is from the ground and what the artist does is he informs it he brings a certain uh, uh, logic and reason and form and content to it and when you combine the uh, the form with the material i mean this is this uh, what's called hylomorphic made of uh, matter and form wow, in the in like the uh, uh, in the sacraments um, something parallel is happening with works of art as the artist is taking form and he's putting it with matter to ideally reveal something, potentially to reveal something that is uh, divine and ultimately Christ, who's the reality of everything, right. of every sacrament and so uh, every potential work of art. That's the basic definition of a sacrament is this material expression of an otherwise unknowable or insensible, invisible spiritual reality. And that's what an artist does. That He compares icons to sacraments. and he, well, Mostly he says that's that it. the okay. Eastern Church they call icons sacraments with a small s, mm -hmm. precisely because that, yeah. they use matter to reveal the heavenly realities. And an artist can make an icon that just is a portrait of you, and you say, well, that's not very heavenly. Or the artist can pray, fast, read, study, and then have this gift to know what heavenly realities are like, and then apply their intellect and will to master the craft. I mean, I might know what heavenly Jerusalem looks like, but if I haven't practiced making icons, I'm not going to be very good at it. And so uh, knowing is part of it, and then mastering the craft is also part of it. And the, the logic behind this letter is he's telling artists the only way for them to come to a full understanding of their mission and vocation and their selves as people is to know this, that if they don't know this, they're going to flounder around and be unhappy and unsatisfied, making things that aren't satisfying. But if you go in the beginning and say, you know what, this is a vocation, this is a skill God gave you, your job is to reach into the heavenly future, use your intellect, will, and, and mastery of craft to reveal that to the world, then you'll be happy. It's like everybody else who has a vocation, they're never happy until they figure it out and then live it. And he's saying artists have this vocation. Particular it's a vocation. Yeah, it's a duty, just like we, like we all have our capital V vocation and small v vocation. But, you know, if we're, if we're not will never be fulfilled and will never be uh, revealing our ontological <laughs> reality right. if we don't do what our vocation asks of us. I can't tell you how many people I've met who've gone to law school because their parents wanted them to, and then they make a pile of money, and 15 years later, like, this is not what I wanted. <laughs> and they mm -hmm. go and become a potter or something. Or but then every once in a while you farmer. meet somebody who just really loves it. Right, because <laughs> that's their to, vocation. I wanted yeah. to be a liturgy guy ever since I was <laughs> knee-height. And you, Jesse, allowed us to fulfill our ontological uh, reality. That's, yeah, uh -oh. that's hylomorphic. Right. But, and it doesn't sound obvious to a Christian, oh, you have a vocation, you should live it. But he's telling the artists of mostly dominated by the secular world, there is such a thing as a vocation, right, a call, and there's a way to fulfill it. So, you know, think of your average 20-year-old in art school that probably have never heard of any of this stuff. 
they're told to paint with their feet or you know roll around in the mud and then run, roll around on a canvas. I mean, express yourself in whatever bizarre way. He's saying, no, there's way more than that. There's kind of two attributes of any artist that they, they have, uh, he calls techne, which is their actual capacity to make stuff, you know, pick up a paintbrush and do and to master the craft. But then there's also a moral, moral character to art that the content of what they do is related to what is good. And so if you don't know what goodness is, you might have all the best craft in the world, but you're not really doing what you ought to do. Basic stuff, but super important in the secular art world, I think. It seems, it seems like those you know, little uh, sentences from, from Pope John Paul II are definitely needed in this culture today. Because I think, one, I, I really am drawn to the idea of a, of a small V vocation. Like, what's your vocation? You know, everybody talks about vocational discernment. Oh, are you going to be priests, non-religious, you know, parents, you know, whatever. But we don't think about that underlying draw or desire that God put in us to do something very specific with our life to to praise Him and to become closer to Him. And and I think you're right, Dennis. I think art in general always had this kind of vague you know reality like what is art and and it's oh it's, it's whatever expression you of myself right but 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 putting that uh for lack of a better term label on art that it that is a vocation and is your duty and if you do so and if that is your vocation you do so you will be totally fulfilled i think that is something that is incredibly beautiful in of itself all right, this is what I want to ask you, uh, Dr. McNamara. I don't know if this is in, the, ahead, uh, uh, in the letter or not, but I've heard you talk about this before, and it has to do with this vocation question. Right? So when one finds his or her vocation, it does a couple of things. One is it makes that person more human uh, and more naturally happy, while at the same time, it is a participation in a supernatural and divine life. And so there's these two components to, in fact, in this letter to artists, uh, it says uh, something like, uh, men and women are to make themselves into masterpieces, into works of art. But in a vocation, it has a, it has a fulfillment on the human level as well as a supernatural level. Now, if this is the case for like a work of art too, again, I don't know if this is in the letter, but I know you've talked about this too, it has to have this natural bearings and moorings. It can't see, a work of art, a good piece of liturgical art cannot cease to be human. But at the same time, it also has to extend into and reach into the heavenly places. It has to have this supernatural element to it as well. And art that is, you mentioned a portrait before, if a work of art is simply a reproduction of the natural, well then it loses out on the supernatural. Conversely, if it's too abstracted and not recognizable as human, that's not good art either. So whether it's music or statuary or windows, um, it has to have this coming together of both the natural and the supernatural. So what's your question? The question... <laughs> what's your question? <laughs> what's the question? Ask the question. Uh, well, I want to know, first of all, is that correct? Does yes. that come from John Paul II? Does it come from Dennis oh, McNamara? I did not think that Does was it, question. What, what is, translate that into uh, uh, some, some examples. Well, imagine you are a surgeon and you're incredibly gifted at repairing... Uh, damage from war injuries. And so you, you find out that you have this gift to reconstruct faces of soldiers damaged in the war. And you decide, eh, I'm not going to do that. I can make more money, you know, giving rich people facelifts. Well, you know, you've made a choice. You're using the craft, this talent and application of, of um, self-mastery that God's given you to use it well or not. And you might say, I've sold out to, to be rich and have a Mercedes. Well, I could do this for free by going, you know, to the war battlefields. 
there, there's a moral component to every act. And if you're given a special vocation to do something specific, you'll be happy if you do it. But it's, he's, John Paul says that the artist puts his talent at the service of the church, the neighbor, and humanity. And the job of anybody who wants to help his neighbor and all of humanity is to lead them to happiness in the bosom of Abraham, right? To be with God. So every artistic move may not be for a church building, but it's to lead people to their fulfillment of, of themselves. He says um, beauty uh, gives us a desire to work for God, which is interesting. Something that's boring and uninspiring, you say, ho hum and walk away. Uh, but if it's, uh, if it's beautiful, it makes you want to do. And so what are you inviting people to do by your art? Are you are leading them into the seven deadly sins? Or are you leaving, leading them into that which is better and higher uh, for themselves? So it's, it's all wrapped up um, together. In fact, he calls um, the meta- metaphysical, metaphysical condition of beauty is the good. So beautiful things are, in fact, leading you to that beyond themselves, to that which is good. And so he says, charity has to guide art, love, love of neighbor. In fact, I remember years ago, many, many years ago, when I was in graduate school, I had a job at the library, um, you know, making minimum wage as a student. So and that was like a uh, like couple of like, nickels an hour? <laughs> it was or? like 17 cents an hour. Okay, He's not no. as old as Kevin. <laughs> oh, Kevin. Uh, anyway, there was, my job was to put the books back on the shelf in the architecture school library, and there were two books right next to each other. One, they were both on composition, you know, the composing of things on, the, on the art on a uh, canvas. And Alberti, Leon Battista Alberti, was this 15th century Christian, Italian, Renaissance uh, theoretician, said composition was the arrangement of light and color and shade and shadow to best inspire charity in the viewer, inspire mm-hmm. love of God and self and neighbor in the viewer, that that's the job of a painter, is, or in a painting, to do that. And then I saw this other book by, um, I think it was Matisse, one of the early 20th century uh, abstract artists, and he said, composition is the arrangement of light and color and line to best express the emotions of the artist. I couldn't be any clearer. And they were right next to each other? Right next to each other in the same car, and I was just about to put those two books away, and I saw that uh, comparison. One, inspire love of God and self and neighbor, and one is express whatever you want. Nothing wrong with self-expression, except it's much lower participation in the action of Christ in the mystical body than the wow. other. And now Alberti, of course, would be us express his desire to make paintings that inspire love. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's a lot, it's a lesser thing. Why was he putting Alberti next to Matisse? Um, yeah, those aren't even alphabetical. It was in the, uh, the Dewey, De- not the Dewey Decimal System, the Library of Congress numbering system put them right in the composition section, whatever that was, NA703.625. Oh Your memory is pretty weird. Oh, yeah. It is. Well, you do it long <laughs> enough, you know. NA737, that's all, all the American architecture books. Yeah, but I think that's, anytime we get into talking about art and beauty, we always get to that, that intersection of, this is me expressing myself and what I want and feel, as opposed to uh, me trying to uh, create something that reveals God. And, and, you know, I think in a certain sense you can do both. I mean, you can... I think you have to do both. Yeah. You have to... You, the faith is this, you know, God becoming man so that man might become God. It's all this relationship between heaven and earth, divinity and humanity. Art seems to be a microcosm or an expression of that very thing, that it has to speak of God. Um, but ideally, as, uh, as God has come to uh, create, redeem, save, uh, divinize us, it has to speak uh, of us. But if it's just leaving us mired in our 
fallenness, well, that's that's only half of the equation. It has to has to uh, inspire and elevate and lead us back to heaven. We talk about questions like, what's the moral of the story, or you know, what's the big theme the artist wants you to know, you know, the author wants you to know. So you have all this sense experience in watching a movie, and then if it really has a deep meaning, people their heart is moved. Like, oh yeah, that's the lesson of that I need to know, and those are the ones that tend to win the Academy Awards when it's not just a whiz bang movie, but when it has a, a mission and a story and a moral. And we don't like moral, you know, in the modern world, but we're talking about it's a lesson on how to live well what is the good and the more beautiful it is the more desirable the good will be so this is what he's trying to tell all these uh, people and artists that they are imitating god who took matter right and was in, incarnate and we were able to see the father because he who has seen me has seen the father and so the job of the artist is to be like christ take stuff matter of the earth and he says uh, every artist goes beyond what the senses perceive it reaches beneath reality and interprets it, it's hidden mystery. Even just the artistry and, that was not me. <laughs> <laughs> even, even the artistry in the way he writes this letter is beautiful. Yes. And it makes me want to, it, it makes me want to be charitable and good and joyful. Do you feel better just listening to this I already? Do, I yeah. do, yeah. I mean, you're an artist yourself in podcasts and video editing. And, you know, if you do it, if you, if you just decided to become a purveyor of, you know, smutty movies just because you know how to edit videos, that would not be using your talent in the right way. Right. But the fact that you're using it in the service of God means you're, you're raising up uh, to the higher end of your own vocation and what you should be doing. Yeah, and I think, you know, We've actually heard from people who've listened just to this podcast, and they've said those things like, oh, you know, I've, I've heard Dennis talk about um, how much he likes pie crust, and it makes me also want pie crust. But, I uh, wish they gave it. <laughs> but, we're but, still waiting for pie crust. But, hope, but hopefully that's kind of what we're doing here, except for we kind of just, at least me, I'm just listening to you guys talk and then try to understand it myself. But um, so, so how does he kind of put a ribbon on the end of this letter. What's the moral of the story? Yeah. Well, you know, he's he's very interested in the modern world and the uh, the fact that people seem to be sinking into despair. Of course, he remembers being under the thumb of the communists, and you know, the communists destroyed um, Warsaw. They just mowed it down. It had all these beautiful buildings, and when you go there now, there's a bunch of drab concrete um, concrete apartment buildings. There's nothing interesting to look at. And he says the world needs beauty not to sink into despair because remember, the result of beauty is delight and joy. And it, truth um, brings joy to the human heart. So if your life is boring and dreary, if your liturgy every Sunday is boring and dreary, you say, well, I don't want to do that again. Right? Oh, my pastor's crazy or the musician's terrible or whatever. It's like, oh, do I really have to go to church again? The, the, the claim he uses, there's a particular Polish poet he quotes, says that beauty is to enthuse us for work. And we talked about the word enthuse before, but it's to have the enthusiasm, the desire to do the work of prayer. And then prayer lifts us up to God. And theos. And theos. God, God within you. God in you. So every, you know, we all, because we're fallen, we all know the world is full of work. And sometimes we don't feel like doing a holy hour, praying the liturgy of the hours, or going to daily mass, or whatever. But the more easy it is, the more delightful it is, the, the more we're likely to do it. So he's telling artists, guess what? If you want to lead people to God, the beautiful will be the way that they'll get there because this is how God wants it. He doesn't want us to hang around bored and just, you know, be a slave to the truth. He wants the truth to be sweet and delightful. You know, so if you have kids and you try to teach them stuff and you say, hey, if you do this, you know, I'll give you dessert tonight. It's the beauty of the dessert that inspires mm -hmm. them to want to be good. And at first that, it's a habit, or it's not a habit, but they do it. Then it becomes a habit. And then when they grow up, 
they say please and thank you and they're nice to each other, not because they're wanting ice cream at the end, but because it's who they are. And so beauty does that for the world. Let me go back to this Father Barron analogy about... Uh, Bishop Barron. Oh, sorry, Bishop Barron. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was recorded four years ago. <laughs> he makes the same point by talking about Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. A bride, the head of the bride is a Christ, and there's this uh, house that uh, is a beautiful house, and the, the protagonist in the story is this Charles Ryder, and it's the beauty of the house that draws him to Brideshead, to Christ, and it's that what uh, inspires him and enthuses him to come to see the truth of the faith and the goodness of the faith, too, but it's through, through beauty that uh, impels him to return. Right. And anybody who wants to evangelize, you can do it in a way that's boring and ugly, or you can do it in a way that's delightful and sweet and beautiful. And beauty is way better for our time. Mm-hmm. Unless you have a room full of philosophers who want to argue about truth, most people just want to do something delightful and sweet. And if it's that and true, then that's your double whammy. And, and you may be listening to this and saying, you know, what is, what is a letter to artists and their vocation have to do with liturgy? But we talked about the art of liturgy. And what, Chris, what, when you were talking about that specifically, having a, having a beautiful liturgy is like thinking of it as a, a, a piece of art or a work of art, I think really, really encapsulates what we're trying to do, revealing different aspects of the liturgy so that we can understand the true beauty of liturgy itself. So that being said, I think it's time to answer another liturgy question. Let's answer it beautifully. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Very beautifully. I can't wait. I'm full of desire for let's the beauty the, of this question. It might even the, be true. Let's hope the question is beautiful in of itself, but we'll see. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from a priest, an anonymous priest, so I guess protocol dictates that we call him Father Rudiger. And Father Rudiger says, can a priest split up a gospel reading into parts other than the time you would do it at the Passion? Example, the woman at the well. Uh, Chris, do you understand that question? I think so. So okay. imagine how the gospel is read in parts on Palm Sunday or Good Friday. I think what, uh, what he's asking is, can you do something similar on the fourth Sunday of Lent or on the eighth Sunday in Ordinary Time? Or on uh, Thursday before Christ. Oh, like it's a script? Like you script? Okay. Yeah. The answer is no. (laughs) Well, I should say, if... Let's uh, describe the question in great detail, and then a one-word answer. Well, uh, this is uh, actually kind of a common question. Um, The answer is... uh, if the church has given an answer, I don't know where it is. I don't, I don't think there's any permission for that type of thing other than on Palm Sunday or Good Friday. Now, in this, there's a letter called Pascalis Solemnitatis, the circular letter on the Easter feast. And it will describe in there how the parts can be, and even in the Roman Missal, 
uh, it will speak about proclaiming uh, the passion on those days in different voices and in different parts. But nowhere else that I'm aware of does that, is there a similar permission to do that to the gospel in other places, with the possible exception of the uh, directory for masses with children speaks of maybe the children dividing up a reading uh, amongst themselves, similar to what happens at... But this is not that case. No, this no. is not that at all. A mass with children means that the those in attendance are the major in the majority they're not in the majority that's why they're called the children they're mostly children right and children my mom yeah. said i was only mostly a child once right uh that um and, and a child in this instance is like fourth grade or or younger so these mm-hmm. are young kids uh, so no this would not apply to any other sunday so uh if there's a permission to do that type of thing i am certainly unaware of anything but like philosophically that. what would be the issue involved why not even well, just because sing- not the singularity comes to mind. Yeah, well, actually, oddly enough, uh, I guess it depends how you think about this document. In another place in the Directory for Masses with Children, it gives this warning that the gospel is not uh, an historical reenactment. It's not to be dramatized. It's not a play. It's nothing like that. Um, you know, so the... Um, uh, the gospel normally is not supposed to be, you know, reading from scripts or anything like that. It's uh, the, the proclamate. It's Jesus Himself speaking to His people in the uh, in the reading of the gospel. So then, why do they do it like that for the Passion for Palm Sunday? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know where the tradition came to do that. The uh, the, the 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 French or the Gauls generally get blamed for the dramatization mm-hmm. of a rather otherwise an otherwise austere and economical Roman sounds liturgy. Like a, sounds like a question from Rediger Weiler. <laughs> That's what I think. So uh, yeah, so I don't know where in the history the the reading the passion and parts uh, came from. Uh, it doesn't have to be done that way, right? I mean, the deacon can just read the whole gospel. Uh, another thing that uh, people have asked me recently is, can the gospel, for example, on uh, you know Good Friday or Palm Sunday, can it be read like in sections? So reader A would do the first three paragraphs, and then he'd hand it over to reader B, and she would do the next three paragraphs, and then it would go to the next reader. That too is not doesn't seem to be envisioned in what the church is providing for uh, in her rubrics about the reading of the Passion and parts on that day. I suppose in the end, it's a way to get people more involved in hearing the gospel. And it seems like the danger is it turns into this little show where first the reader comes and then it changes. And instead of concentrating on the text, you're concentrating on the one proclaiming the text. And generally speaking in liturgical things, it's the primacy of the breaking through of the spiritual realities that are more important than the one who is helping them break through, even though they're both necessary. So avoiding any kind of distraction from the primacy of the meaning of the text itself seems to me a good safeguard. All right. So Father Rudiger if that is your real name. I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.